and welcome to this episode of the Women in Ecology and Evolution podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirsty McLeod. There is no more ubiquitous event in the online science communication calendar than March Mammal Madness, the annual bracket-based science tournament that reaches hundreds of thousands of students through imagined Twitter battles between animal species based on facts from the scientific literature. This year, March Mammal Madness is celebrating its 10th year, and I was lucky enough to catch up with its founder, Dr. Katie Hind, and longtime participant, Dr. Alison Brokaw, to talk about the history of the tournament and what people can expect on this special year. We also have another great paper in focus for you from Dr. Priyanka Kushwaha on soil microbes and heavy metals. First up, though, I chatted with Katie about her research on science education and lactation and the amazing properties of mother's milk. It's a treat to be joined today by Dr. Katie Hind, Associate Professor in the School of Human Evolution and Social Change at Arizona State University. Welcome, Katie. It's fantastic to have you on the podcast. Would you like to start by uh, telling me a bit about your research at the Comparative Lactation Lab? Uh, Thank you. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm really excited to talk to you about uh, the stuff that I have going on uh, here at Arizona State University. And, And my research program really has three major interconnected kinds of dimensions. So um, the research that I've been doing the longest that I'm probably um, most known for within animal behavior, biology, anthropology areas has to do with infant development and um, maternal and child health, specifically around lactation. So as a graduate student, I became really interested um, at the intersection of anthropology and psychology because there was you know, all this just really wonderful work on how aspects of maternal condition were influencing a mother's behavioral care and then aspects of the infant's development. And then there was all this really great research on how like prenatal exposures to different kinds of nutrition or um, endocrine signaling were having these kind of long lasting effects in offspring. And, and as somebody that studies mammals, it's you know, one of our key things is that that physiological investment isn't just during gestation, it continues into lactation. And so I found myself having all these questions about the ways in which infant development is shaped by the milk a mother synthesizes. It took a little while to convince my committee that I could study this because uh, a number of primatologists and, and others had tried to collect milk on monkeys in the 80s and 90s and, and had just really run into a lot of of difficulty in getting enough sample um, in enough subjects to be able to say things about maternal effects mediated through milk on infant development. And so uh, I was able to convince uh, people to give me a chance and ended up conducting a series of studies um, in rhesus monkeys, rhesus macaques, and um, found some really neat stuff about the way that the nutritional components of milk and glucocorticoids in milk are predictive of growth trajectories, which of course you would expect, but that they're also implicated in the kind of behavioral phenotype of the infant. And that there are some really interesting differences in how this plays out for sons and daughters. The glucocorticoids are part of the endocrine signaling that you were talking about in the prenatal period, right? Right, right. So um, 
most people, I think, end up, um, when they hear glucocorticoids or they hear cortisol, they think the term stress hormone. Your glucocorticoids, while they do get um, acutely elevated during particular stressor, they are doing so much heavy lifting signaling for our metabolism, our skeletal health, our you know functions of memory and, and other aspects of neurofunctioning. And, and so to me, glucocorticoids are really there to orchestrate all sorts of things about how our tissues are functioning under normal times, but also um, really step up during um, acute events. What's really interesting is that we now know that mammalian infants have glucocorticoid receptors in their intestinal tracts, which um, the density of those receptors goes down as mammal infants age and are weaned. And so that suggests quite compellingly that those receptors are there to receive a signal from the mother's milk, that, that milk is not just food, it's not just immunofactors, but it's also this really important endocrine signaling pathway. You know, these are some of the like key questions that we've been working on in the lab. We're right now writing up some really neat work on milk production in the mother, how that's correlated with infant condition, and then how that predicts the offspring's behavior in adolescence. Years later in rhesus monkeys, um, how is this affecting aspects like energy use in different regions of the brain? and um, other kinds of, of pretty neat social behaviors that they're engaging in. So for a long time, their interest in maternal effects was really focused on physiology prenatally and behavior postnatally. And, uh, and we're starting to see more, more researchers getting excited about the potential interactions between physiological investment and behavioral care postnatally and how this is shaping the development of mammals in, in meaningful ways when they are engaging in, in contingent social interactions, when they are exploring an environment that's so much more complex than the fetal environment. And, uh, and that's, that's one of the areas that we're really interested in exploring further. So are you still mostly working with um, smaller primates? That's a great question. I was originally in this area because I was interested in humans, but humans are so complicated in aspects of the ways in which our cultures can affect lactation. So um, depending on what country you're in, you may or may not have paid parental leave. Depending on what country you're in, you may or may not have knowledgeable uh, healthcare providers that can guide uh, breastfeeding. How uh, families and, and mothers go about making infant feeding decisions and what decisions are available to them is so highly impacted by uh, nation, socioeconomic status, um, personal family history, ethnicity, religion. There's all sorts of layers there. And when I was a graduate student, of course, you know, like you can't typically run a 5,000 person study to start to tease apart some of these things. And it would be really, really challenging to get that many milk samples. And so I had turned to a monkey model because I was really interested in uh, slowly developing uh, singleton infants with socially behaviorally complex uh, species and um, that lived in groups that were a mix of close kin, distant kin, and non-kin. And, and in that sense, the rhesus monkey was a really, really nice stand-in um, to look at some of these dynamics. And and since that initial work, we've kept the rhesus monkey work going, but we've also branched out into working at times with rodent models, with um, dairy cows, uh, that, you know, obviously dairy cows are a very artificially selected system for lactation, but it's still 
um, allows important insights into uh, some of these dynamics. Um, and we've worked in different communities of uh, human mothers. Amongst these, you know, the kinds of questions you can ask and the answers you get are going to be different. But through that kind of diversified research portfolio, we're able to triangulate, I think, some really interesting understandings of the ways in which natural selection has shaped the adaptation of lactation to um, respond to mother's life history trade-offs and then also shape infant life history trade-offs. It's super cool stuff. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you mentioned you mentioned two other strands to your research. Let's get into those. Yeah, yeah. So uh, launched in 2013, um, initiated by Kate Clancy and um, with collaborators Julian Rutherford and Robin Nelson, we conducted one of the first systematic studies of gendered experiences within academic fieldwork, um, focusing on aspects of gender harassment, sexual harassment, and sexual assault. And this was published in 2014, um, known as the SAFE study, the Survey of Academic Field Experiences, that um, had respondents from over 30 different academic disciplines that provided information about what they what people had navigated while they were doing field work. And, you know, for I think many of us working in this space, you know, it was always kind of an open secret that these can be risky spaces, that attitudes within research teams can be dangerously permissive. We we launched this before Me Too became part of the mainstream dialogue. And so the kinds of attitudes around these issues were very marginalizing, um, particularly to women, particularly to women trainees. I did the quantitative analysis for that first paper. And so I sat with hundreds of responses of just really, you know, kind of um, really sad things that were happening to my colleagues and that were oftentimes being done by other colleagues. It's really hard to stay in love with science when mm. you're sitting in those realities. And the the infant development milk work is super fun, but it's still like work. It's still a slog on many days. It's still, you know, focusing on that is not really a, a, an escape from a really depressing research project. And so uh, what ended up happening kind of at the same time, kind of just by chance, I also launched uh, this science communication initiative known now as March Mammal Madness. What I realized is that this, this one month kind of tournament science camp of, you know, all these different animals, adaptations and, be, and, and habitats and kind of thinking what would happen if these species encountered each other. It was a personal boot camp for me to remember why I love science, why I love animal behavior, why I love field work and research. And, um, and what I find is looking back on the last 10 years that I leaned hard into this really positive kind of festival of science at the same time that I was working on these topics that were really, really hard in science. You know, now that I look at my portfolio and I've been publishing in all of these areas, we've done research in all of them and, and had multiple papers in all of them, is that I, I do my science and then I work to welcome more people to science and get them enthusiastic about science and also work to make the science they arrive at one that's more what we deserve. Uh, so we're going to talk more about Marshmallow Madness in the second half of the podcast, but just as a primer, in case people haven't heard about this, could you give me a quick rundown on how the tournament works? Yeah. So in the U.S., every March, there is a, a college basketball tournament 
that is a single elimination tournament that starts with 64 teams from colleges all across the U.S. and basically has this like intense few weeks of games until you end up with the final four and then a champion. And when I was an undergraduate at the University of Washington, my friend group, we would we would fill out our brackets about what was going to happen in this basketball tournament, put them up on the wall and then watch the games. And, the, and basketball is a very fast paced very dynamic kind of exciting sort of game, high scores. Um, but at the at the last minutes, things can turn really fast. And we would actually skip classes that first two days of the tournament when 64 teams went down to 32 in this you know, gruesome sports bloodbath. And we just, we trash talk each other's guesses. And when somebody else's champion went down, we'd be like, oh, <laughs> and like, it was just, it was really, really fun. And so so when I first was a professor, there was this this animal bracket on BuzzFeed. And I remember being like, oh, if it's animals, maybe maybe the lab can play it. It'll be fun. We can we can laugh about it. And so I printed it out and handed it out to my lab. And as I was looking at it, it was like only 16 animals, which like that's not that's not March Madness. <laughs> and it was based on whichever one was cutest. And I was like, what? And, and then there were a whole bunch of animals that just were left off, right? Because what what else would happen when you only had 16? And so I, like, after 15 minutes, I came back out and I was like, give me a bracket. And took him back and I was like, give me an hour. And I tossed <laughs> together this, like, super janky little PowerPoint bracket of species and kind of launched that first one. I did a silly hype video on YouTube and I put it on my blog. And this was in 2013. And Twitter was a, science Twitter was a totally different place at that time. It was, you know, kind of small and, and gentle. And so, like, people started playing like people took pictures with their bracket and like it ended up being this like really really fun thing and and basically what happens is you have these matchups and then using the empirical literature and what we know about these animals adaptations and motivations and behavioral phenotype we kind of estimate the outcome and use a random number generator to see what the official outcome is so sometimes there's upsets and improbable outcomes happen um, which requires some finesse with the evidence like you have to go find like some outside source of mortality because there's no way this water shrew is going to take out this, you know, much bigger animal. So, and you, and it's live tweeted on Twitter as like a play by play. And that, that's how it started in 2013 and, and it kind of stayed that way for a bit, but people had so much fun playing at the end of 2013. Um, they're all like, all right, see you in 2014. And I was like, okay, I can't, I can't do this again myself. It's really <laughs> too much work. And I recruited um, Christy Luton, Josh Drew, and Chris Anderson, uh, an evolutionary morphologist, a marine biologist, and an entomologist to come help me with my mammal battles. Um, and every year it's leveled up. We've gotten more narrators. We've gotten this team of artists. We've got a library crew. We, every year it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And for 2022, um, the last time I checked, over 6,000 teachers had signed up for wow. educational materials we now create to go with the tournament for their 540,000 learners. That's amazing. So it's, um, yeah, so my email is a shambles right now. Um, <laughs> you crashed the library uh, server. <laughs> we crashed, oh yeah, we, we sent the email out to the educators and, you know, last year it had been just, everything was hosted on my like Google Drive and it got all jammed up in 2021. So we're like, okay, we'll move it over to the ASU library that will definitely be able to handle the traffic. And then we crashed. <laughs> we had to reboot the library server. And like people were like trying for multiple hours to get in and, and get the materials. And so it's, um it's just, it keeps growing. And 
it's become a really, really fun space to think about. And, and I think, you know, as I go into the evolutionary social science, we'll talk more about this later, I'm sure. Like, I should have realized just from first principles that uh, a tournament of animal adaptations led by experts in a kind of festival event atmosphere, like that checks off like several key boxes for human psychological and cognitive architecture to be really excited about it. And um, the official team is over 50 people now. And then the like ripples out of like other people doing stuff is, you know, probably not even counting teachers um, close to 200 people. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's, you know, February and March are all my friends know to like really not, not expect me to show up. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so great to see it back for its 10th iteration. Um, and yeah. we, we're going to talk more about um, how it functions as a SciComm tool and a public engagement tool uh, in just a moment. So Katie, you're going to stick around. Um, thanks so much. Lovely to, lovely to hear from you. Great. Thank you so much for having me. It's good to see you too. Today I'm joined by Dr. Priyanka Kushwaha, a postdoc at the University of Arizona in the Department of Environmental Science, to talk about her research and recent paper on soil microbial communities. Thank you, Christy. It's, it's a pleasure to join your podcast. So we'll get into more detail about the paper, obviously, but first, why don't you tell me a bit more about the broader focus of your postdoc in Arizona? Sure, yeah. It- it was an interesting move. I did my PhD in Florida, and I'm not originally from US. I am from India, so I came to you, uh, US for my PhD, and I had never been to Arizona before. Um, but I applied to a postdoc position, which was similar to the skills I had learned in my PhD, which was soil microbial ecology and looking at nutrient cyclings in soil and how microbes are making the nutrients available in the soil. And the only difference for this position was that I wouldn't be studying urban soils or organic matter-rich soils that were in Florida. This will be a completely different ecosystem, which will be nutrient-limited because it's the desert. And also, in addition to that, I would be studying metal-contaminated soils. So I was excited to take this position. So you've moved from swampy Florida to arid Arizona, um, but you've stuck with soil microbes. How did you become interested in these microbial communities to begin with? So it's an interesting path. And every time I have to talk about it, I feel like, oh, I really envision something different from me, but here I am learning about soil (laughs) microbes. Um, So I was interested in being a forensic scientist and I was looking for projects that would help me And I joined Dr. Mills lab at Florida International University, and there was a project there where they were looking at microbial DNA markers for soil provenance purposes. And that really intrigued me because I had never heard of that. Like we use DNA for human subject identifications, but not really in soil. Everything was based off soil chemistry analysis and matching soil from a crime scene to somebody's car or shoe was more chemical. So I was very intrigued by it. But then I also learned that microbes do a whole lot more in the soils, providing all the nutrients, recycling them so they become available to plants. And that's how that journey started for me. 
Yeah, I think we often think of soil as being this quite inert, lifeless material, but obviously your research shows that it's really teeming with life and wouldn't function without life, right? Yeah, definitely, yeah. So moving on to your recent paper, here you and your co-authors were interested in soil microbes and how they influence the uptake of trace metals by plants. So what are trace metalloid elements and how do they get into the soil and why should we be concerned about them or should we be concerned about them? Well, we should be concerned about them to start with. The trace metalloids that I um, and my co-authors are referring in the paper, they are particularly zinc cadmium. How did they end up being there is as a result of mining and smelting practices in the area. So 50, 100 years ago, the mining technology that we had was not as efficient. So once we extracted the metals, there was a lot of waste product that was left behind. So as a result, they became part of the soil that was there. And some plants have evolved to grow in there without uh, much stress. And that's why we are looking at this particular plant species in our study, which is able to grow in these contaminated soils. So is it able to do that because it's somehow not taking them up? At least for Arabidopsis haleri, which is the plant species that we studied in this paper, it takes up zinc and cadmium and it excludes out lead. So if there's lead in the soil, it won't uptake lead, but it does uptake zinc and cadmium. So where do the soil microbes come in? So that's, yeah, that's interesting because, um, as I said, Arabidopsis haleri is a hyperaccumulator, which means it's accumulating metals in above ground tissues, but it's also called a pseudo-metallophyte. And what that means is that there are different populations, Arabidopsis halari, where some populations uptake metals where they grow. So they are growing in metal contaminated soils, but there are also populations that do not grow in metal contaminated soils and as a result do not take up metal. But there is a specific population that we were interested in because it's growing in unpolluted soils, but is still uptaking zinc. We hypothesize that it could be the soil microbes that are making this zinc bioavailable. And as a result, the plant is able to uptake it in this particular population. So talk me through how you went about testing this hypothesis. Actually, before... I move into how we did this. I want to credit Dr. Alicia Babs-Pasteca. She's my current postdoc advisor, and she had been studying at Arabidopsis haleri in Poland for a long time. So we decided on four locations across Poland where we would collect the soil samples, two populations which would accumulate metal. And then the other two um, locations were uncontaminated soils, but one of the populations was hyperaccumulating zinc. And then we sent out the soil DNA to be sequenced so we can identify and characterize which microbes are in these soils. So in our analysis, we found that at metal contaminated sites, we had more number of taxa, microbial organisms, we can say, present in the plant-associated soil sample versus the background, whereas the 
uncontaminated sites, there we found these ratios were lower between the plant associated and the background soil. And we found that there are different variables that explain zinc and cadmium hyperaccumulation. The microbial taxa associated strongly with zinc hyperaccumulation, whereas it was the bioavailability of zinc and cadmium that's strongly associated with cadmium hyperaccumulation. What's next for you in this line of research? So what we have next is Alicia, when she was back in Poland, she started um, set up two greenhouse experiments with the same populations. So what we did in these studies were we have transplanted these populations in different soils to see how the soil microbes are interacting if we change the population from its native location. So right now I'm analyzing the soil microbial data for these two studies we did. Uh, Well, congratulations on the paper and thanks very much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you, Christy. It was it was a pleasure. Welcome back to this edition of the Women in Ecology and Evolution podcast. This episode is a special celebration of March Mammal Madness. This year marks its 10th anniversary, and I'm delighted to be back with Dr. Katie Hind, who started March Mammal Madness back in 2013, and we are joined by one of the recurring participants, behavioral ecologist and bat scientist, Dr. Alison Brokaw. Welcome, Alison. Hi, thanks for having me. (laughs) So before we dive into March Mammal Madness, Alison, you've recently completed your PhD at Texas A&M. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, Can you tell us a bit about your PhD project and your research in general? Uh, Sure. So um, like you said, I'm a behavioral ecologist um, specifically interested in sensory ecology. So how animals behave and use their different senses to navigate the world around them. Um, And my PhD research focused specifically on how bats use their sense of smell to find food. So we call that, refer to that as olfactory tracking. And it's a a behavior that lots of animals do. We think of like dogs as being really good at tracking odors, but it turns out that lots of animals do really similar behaviors to follow an odor trail or an odor plume. So my research, I ended up kind of falling down the olfactory ecology hole and was trying to figure out how fruit bats, if and how fruit bats are able to follow odors to locate the source of a fruit tree using a combination of museum, specimen, morphology, and uh, a lot of behavioral trials in the field. Is the sort of olfactory signal use in species that eat fruit rather than pursuing insects? I kind of think of those as being like echolocators. Yeah, yeah, that's, bats are probably using odors more than we think they are, even the ones that are primarily using sound um, and are primarily eating insects still use odor for social reasons, Um, Mm. things like courtship and mother-pup interactions. I actually, I tried for a while to train insect-eating bats to learn to recognize a smell, to try to test them. And they just, 
it was too weird of a request. So I couldn't get them to figure <laughs> out that they needed to use an odor because so, they're so used to using other senses. So that's partly why I switched to fruit bats because there was decent evidence already in the literature that they use odors in foraging and fruit selection to some extent. Um, so I was trying to basically take, you could sort of think of it as, you know, the, the animal on the landscape. And we knew we have pretty good evidence that bats are using odors to choose between individual fruits. And so that's kind of like the last step. So I was kind of taking a step back to see, okay, how are they using odor to get to the point where they can choose? So it was really, it was really awesome. I was able to use, I used um, some neat uh, behavioral tracking software that would automatically track where the animal was moving in three dimensions. So it was actually creating three-dimensional flight paths to try to figure out what sort of behaviors the bats are using to figure out where an odor is. I think it's fair to say that you are very well known in science Twitter and science communication spheres for your deep passion for bats. Um, did your love of bats lead you to this research area or was was the love of bats more of a consequence of, of your work? Probably more the first. So um, I actually studied birds as an undergraduate student uh, and kind of got interested in bats towards the end of my my undergrad actually through a science outreach communication class and just kind of realized that there was a lot of things we didn't really understand or know about bats. And when I went to go on to graduate school, I was like, I'm going to do bats. <laughs> and I was interested in, in more social communication and originally acoustics and then kind of was like, well, what about smell? And then sort of fell down the rabbit hole down to foraging. And actually, <laughs> A little bit ironic, funny, but uh, I, I'm actually starting a postdoc tomorrow um, at Lehigh oh, wow. University where I will be studying mice. Oh, cool. <laughs> so I'm actually temporarily <laughs> stepping away from bat research um, to continue learning about how mammals use olfactory tracking behaviors and mechanisms in a, an animal that's a little easier to have in a lab and control those, a lot of those different variables. But I'll still be in the bat world because you can take a scientist out of the bat <laughs> world, but you can't take the bats out of it. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so, Alison, you've been participating in March Mammal Madness for a few years now. What drew you to want to get involved with this um, initiative? <laughs> um, so basically, maybe around 2015, 2016, around when I started my, my master's degree doing bats and sort of really started to get into Twitter, I would basically just tease Katie every year of like, where are the bats? Why are you picking <laughs> such like small, boring bats? Like there's all these amazing carnivorous and like big bats and like, come on, like we need, the bats are always losing. Like we need somebody who can, who can like fight and like have a chance somewhere. <laughs> And I guess I, finally, I just annoyed Katie enough that she was like, well, if you want to come write bat battles, <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I joined the team in 2020 um, as a scientist narrator. It's a great community, you know, online. And it's also great just having, you know, all these colleagues and people from different career levels, different career paths to kind of just have, especially as a early career researcher, um, to have those resources has been really amazing. So I'm, I'm super grateful to Katie and everybody who's a part of 
Marshmallow Madness for that. Yeah, and, and Marshmallow Madness has really benefited from Allison's presence because one, she brings bats. impeccable bat <laughs> knowledge, right? One, we've, we've really expanded. I think we could actually do a regression model of like Allison joining the team and the number of bats that have uh, been featured in the tournament. But um, Allison's just really good at writing battles, right? So the, the battles are written as a story, as a kind of like combination narrative using kind of story devices of suspense and, and that, but also like a sports play-by-play. They're live tweeted out like a performance and Allison's battles are just wicked good. Uh, she finds these just really fascinating aspects of natural history, like stomach acids that dissolve <laughs> tissue like, very quickly and, and, and just amazing stuff um, that had like really quickly brought her like MVP status in terms of, what, how she's able to get other people excited about bats with a story. And, and we've learned from like education, pedagogical research, that facts are really exciting for people that are already on board, right? People that collect facts that are already like kind of have like a database of facts in their mind, that, that mind is excited about facts, but that's not necessarily the, the typical phenotype. And that if you want people to remember information, uh, embedding it in a story and having it play a decisive role in some kind of, you know, epic battle outcome really, really helps people remember that, that information um, to the point where, you know, I, I got an email this morning from a teacher who had a student that applied knowledge of deep sea pressure on tissues that came up in the tournament last year and applying it to some of the species that are going to be in it this year, right? And like carrying knowledge forward. And so it's, it's been really, really great to have all of the narrators and have them all, you know, doing battles in their own voices with their own expertises. So you, Katie and Alison, were both authors on a publication about March Mammal Madness specifically and the power of narrative in Psycom, which you touched on there. Um, is there anything that you want to expand on about that paper? We, we called that paper the beast. <laughs> <laughs> that paper which um, we were so excited to be able to publish in eLife as part of their new education and outreach article series. So the first part is just like kind of the history and growth of the tournament and legitimize that this is real science informing about real science concepts, right? So we've, you know, at that time that the, the analysis was done, we had cited over 1100 scholarly sources just in the battle narratives alone. And that was nearly doubled by the genetics team and their genetics information. So it was basically for people that think online social media psychom is trivial or um, not scholarly. It was like, no, listen to how scholarly this is. And so we did that. <laughs> and then we had, um, we've been serving the educators that are using it with their learners. And so we were able to do this really kind of rich um, mixed methods, quantitative and qualitative analysis of how educators are using it. And, and then the third part of the paper, uh, which was just wonderfully fun um, in terms of a scholarly exercise, is fundamentally bringing together the pedagogical applied teaching literature with evolutionary social science about cognitive development and social learning, wh what kind of things we're biased to learn about. So human minds are adapted to learn about dangerous animals, right? Because that was a fitness relative, relevant type of social information. And so, you know, we really bring all that together about like why stories are important 
why this kind of content is important and why we've made certain kinds of decisions in how and what species we feature in order to, to gain access to people's enthusiasm through kind of charismatic, fuzzy animals while also getting to talk about, you know, perhaps less charismatic species. And so I think this is something that is not yet as broadly talked about in science communication among life scientists about the rich information available to us from evolutionary social science so that we can do a better job with our science communication and, and grow it into actual science engagement. Yeah. You mentioned that, I mean, this paper is, is like a, a tool for legitimizing science communication, perhaps to people who are skeptical. Um, it's obviously been running now for a long time. You've both been in the SciComm game for a long time. Do you feel like attitudes have shifted over that time and in, in how science communication is valued? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I'm, I'm a slightly also at a slightly different career stage than Katie. And I think among sort of my peers of, you know, late grad school, even, you know, people who are just starting their PhDs, um, you know, things like Twitter and Instagram and the, and the sort of social media SciComm have, have been around for a little while now, you know, stuff like Marginal Madness, but even just, you know, the casual thing, there's all, there's tons of people doing lots of really different things and um, using that social media presence as like a jumping off point. Uh, I think there's definitely, depending on who you're talking to, still a little bit of like, uh, you know, sort of like, oh, well, that's just the thing that, that they do like for fun on the side or whatever. I think, so I, <laughs> last year I, I joined TikTok, um, which I feel like is, is an, a whole, it's like, it's social media, but it's sort of a whole other social media, which also has its own weird connotations of like how you use it for science communication. I mean, I'm, my videos, if they reach a thousand people, that's still a thousand more people than I would ever be talking to in a single event, you know? Um, yeah. So I think in that respect, it's, it's useful and good training grounds and people are, are more receptive to it, I think now than they probably were even five years ago. Yeah, I, I think it has greater legitimacy than it used to in like the perspective of institutional administrations. So I think leadership actually really values these kinds of efforts. I think they recognize that to be a successful 21st century scholar, you, you cannot only be engaging in the ivory tower. In terms of our respective disciplined silverbacks, they, uh, you know, are, it's, it's mosaic how much they appreciate it. I think it's also, as we work to uh, increase equal opportunity within the academy, part of that isn't just becoming enculturated into the existing academic worldview, but updating the academic worldview. And I think for many people from different kinds of backgrounds, this is really important work. It's part of their scholarly portfolio. And like, I know for me, you know, I started at community college. I, I grew up in poverty class and uh, went from Kew College to a big state school, got my PhD at a state school, I postdoctored at a state school. And then I ended up, my first faculty position was in the Ivy League. And that to me was so ill-fitting for a variety of reasons, but most notably like all of my expertise, the, the funds that supported my research and the funding that supported my education, that all came from the public trust, right? That was taxpayer. And then all of a sudden my expertise was now locked behind an ivy wall. Like that seems like a, like I was defecting on the social contract as I view it. 
And so as soon as I got there, I was like, all right, I'm starting a blog. I'm going to start a Twitter account. I'm going to make sure that I'm returning this investment in my expertise to the investors, which is the general public. And to me, that's a really important aspect of my philosophical approach to SciComm and, and why I'm really happy to be at a place like Arizona State University that is deeply committed to community engagement, community presence, and increasing the connections between the university and, and the broader social sphere in which we exist. Lastly, I just want to ask, uh, what can we expect from the 10th edition of the tournament? Any wild card animals we should be looking out for? Who's your money on this year? <laughs> I mean, I imagine, Allison, what's your answer? Man, <laughs> every year I am like, I'm, you know, there's there's the head bracket and the heart bracket, right? And like, <laughs> for, so the, the wild card matchup is between two bats, which um, is going to be... Uh, uh, exciting. Um, <laughs> I'm already having stress dreams about it. I'm excited to to kind of have that challenge. It'll be the the battle yeah. of the molasses. I'm really excited about the mammal collectives division. So uh, a really funny quirk of the English language is that we have these collective nouns, right? So um, a pride of lions or a labor of moles or a skulk of foxes this quirk of English dates back at least 500 years, right? So we have documentation for all three of those examples from the 1490s book, the Book of St. Albums. But what's funny about English is that it does all these things with like, in the absence of any accurate natural history information, so you'll have these kinds of, you know, collective nouns for animals <laughs> that are not social in meaningful ways. And so I think we're gonna see some really hilarious antics come out so there's, there's four divisions. What are the other three? We've got uh, Queens of the Sea and Sky. You know, the tournament's based on combatant that represents the prime condition, most able to battle individual. And in mammals, because of pregnancy and lactation or, you know, gestation or, you know, growing eggs, if we're talking about the monotremes, but, you know, mammals, a lot of the work falls on females and males among more mammals are engaged in contest competition uh, for access to females. And so they come with a, an armamentarium, if you will, for battle. And so over the years of the tournament, we've really showcased a lot of male adaptations and male traits. Um, and so the Queens of the Sea and Sky is reaching beyond mammals. There are some mammals in there for species in which the female is bigger or more bad ass or more knowledgeable or for whatever reason is more adept at whatever skill we're deciding to showcase in the tournament. Um, there's the wild North America. They are from populations that are specifically tied to public lands, usually national parks or national forests or other kinds of conservation or recreation areas. So it gives us a chance to kind of talk about different approaches to land stewardship and, and how that's quite important. And then our last division is why am I blanking on it? Allison, it's uh why not both? Oh, why not both? Yeah, that oh, one's yeah. going to be fun too, I think. Um, yeah, so why not both are species where the individual has like weird combinations of traits, right? So like you could say things like, do you want uh, antlers or tusks? And like the mutt jack says, why not both? Or you could say like, do you want to make milk or lay eggs? And the echidna is like, why not both? <laughs> and, uh, and so we have the two divisions that have all sorts of animals and then we have two divisions that are dedicated to mammals. 
So what are the dates people need to know about and what do people need to do before then in order to get involved? Uh, so the tournament officially starts March 14th with Allison's bat versus bat battle and um, really gets going with round one um, on March 16th. So go to the ASU LibGuide. So just do a search for LibGuide March Mammal Madness ASU and you will get there. So download your bracket, predict who you think is going to make it, you know, deep into the tournament to the elite trait and the final roar and then be champion. And then you can start following the action live on Twitter starting March 14th at 8 p.m. Eastern time in the U.S. But then we also archive all the tweets and we do sports summaries and all of those get posted as a little guide. Uh, so you can always catch up the next day. I would say the, the, the MMM fans are amazing. I am every year. I'm always impressed with the, the speed at which these people can make memes, like as battles are happening. I, <laughs> as somebody who doesn't, who isn't like, doesn't have that type of humor that I can like, you know, quick pull puns and stuff. Like every year I'm so impressed by, by just the, the level of like knocking them out as the battles are going and, and riffing off each other. And it's like, I'll, you'll finish tweeting a battle and then you look back and you're like, oh my God, what was going on? <laughs> it's, it's wonderful. Hundreds, hundreds of responses <laughs> to everybody. I mean, it's, just, it's, it's, it's a really, you feel like you're at a sporting yeah. event. It's been incredibly special the last two years um, for forging um, connections and making people feel like they are embedded in a really caring community. Um, when a lot of us have been dispersed and isolated. So it's a, it's a special, it's a special community. Yeah. We're really thankful for all the people that make it happen and all the people that, that make the community. Well, I will make sure um, the libguides link and all the hashtags and everything that you need to know, a link to the brackets and all of that will be in the episode notes. So thanks so much. I'm, I'm really excited for it. My husband and I have had arguments over our brackets <laughs> in the past, so I'm looking forward to that kicking off again. Uh, lovely to chat to you both. Thanks so much yeah, for joining. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for having us. Thanks all for listening to this episode of the Women in Ecology and Evolution podcast. As always, all the links we've talked about, including all the materials you'll need to fill out a March Mammal Madness bracket and take part in this year's tournament, will be available in the notes for this episode, online at www.theweepodcast.org. Don't miss out, it's a lot of fun. Thanks again to my guests, Dr. Katie Hine, Dr. Alison Brokaw and Dr. Priyanka Kushwaha. I've been your host, Dr. Kirsty McLeod, and I'll be back again soon with more great conversations with women in ecology and evolution. Stay safe until then. Bye.